The word of the Lord in Genesis 37. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. When they saw him from a distance and before he had come to, close to them, they plotted against him and put him to death, to put him to death. But Reuben heard this and rescued him from out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. I think one of the hardest lessons, but probably one of the best lessons we can learn as Christians is that God is sovereign. God is a sovereign God. He is on the throne. And he providentially moves in the life of his people for our good and for his purpose. And that idea of providence is that God is not absent, that he does know what's going on. And he's not passive but he's active and he moves. Now last week we, we looked at the be, kind of this background for really where, where I wanted to be today, which is Genesis chapter 37 and, and the story of Joseph. And, and, and just so you know my heart as a pastor and, and why I wanted to, to look from Genesis 37 through 50 in the life of Joseph 
is I think that many Christians forget that God is sovereign, that God really is there. And the things that happen in our life, he does know about, and often he allows it to happen for the very purpose to help us. For many of us, we need to grow up. For many of us, we need to understand that that activity of God, sometimes even pain, is very necessary for us as believers. It equips us, it changes us, it molds us. And to say that God is sovereign is to say that he is supreme over all things, that there is no one above him, that nothing is out of his control and nothing happens that God has not foreseen or that he allows. And to speak of providence, it means that he has not abandoned the world he created and he works within his creation, managing all things according to his will. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, cheer up, Christian, things are not left to chance. No blind fate rules the world. God has purposes and those purposes are fulfilled. God has plans and those plans are wise and never can be dislocated. And nothing is clearly seen better in terms of his providence and his sovereignty, I think, than in the life of Joseph. In this life of this young man, as, we, as we're gonna walk through these different chapters, we're gonna see God working. But we're also gonna see this young man suffer and suffer greatly, but within the suffering, within the mix, within all the mess, God is in control. He has not left the throne. The life of Joseph is Romans 8, 28, lived out. It's illustrated for us. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and who, will, who are called according to his purpose. And we'll see, see throughout his life that God can take the even dis, evil decisions of man and he can turn them and use them to bring forward his purpose and his plan. And Joseph's life will often look like maybe God has abandoned him. And as I was praying through this message, I was thinking that maybe there might be some here this morning where you may think that God has abandoned you. Brother and sister, cheer up. God has not forgotten you. He is on the throne. He does have a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. And he will bring forward his purposes even when we can't see it and even when we're in the midst of pain because we have a good, good father who loves us and he cares. And so this morning, we'll see Joseph. We're going to see that he is set up for failure. He's set up by, for failure by, from his father and we're going to see that he has siblings that absolutely detest him. But yet God, in the mix of all that junk, is going to use this young man in a powerful way. So the first thing we see this morning is that Joseph was set apart for his father's affection. And Joseph was set apart for his father's affection. You see, Jacob, his father, loved Jacob more than he did his brothers, and that set him up for a fall. Now, the narrative of, of Joseph's life, it begins right here with him being 17 years old. He's kind of this strapping young man, kind of at the beginning stage of adulthood. And as we discussed last week, there were some major dysfunctional problems with his family. His great-grandfather, which is Abraham, although he was truly a great man of God, had great faith, he had some real issues, and one of his major issues is that he feared man. 
He had the fear of man, and, and that fear of man, even after he knew the covenant of God, even as, after he had seen in a vision the things that God was going to do and the promises of God, twice he lied. First time was in Egypt, and he was afraid because his wife was beautiful, and he told his wife, you got to lie. you got to say you're my sister. And then Pharaoh takes his wife, puts her in his harem, but before Pharaoh can do anything, God moves in power and rescues her. Later, I'm talking years later, after the covenant is in place, he's seen God move, he's even shown great courage, he does the exact same thing and with the king of Geir, his name was Abimelech. He again has his wife say that she's his sister and, and again, Abimelech takes her and puts him in his harem, but again we see God move. Abraham had his faults, his weaknesses, but, but God still used him and still moved forward his plan. We see in Isaac, Isaac had the issue that he divided his family. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. And because of that, it causes discord within the family. And then Rebecca, she wants to love Jacob more than Esau, and so you have this real divide in the family and all these family squabbles and problems, but still God moved and, and used that mess to move forward his plan. And then you have Jacob. Jacob, that, that word literally means a supplanter. He, 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 he lied. He was always manipulating, trying to fix the deal. And yet God uses that. I mean, literally, he partners with his, wife, his, his mother to sin against his brother. He literally lies to his own father. He tricks his blind father into thinking that he's Esau, and he steals his brother's blessing. And yet God still moved in Jacob's life as well. Now, never does God condone sin. And always there are consequences to sin. But sin does not limit God. And because God is sovereign, it does not stop the progression of what he wants to be done. And so Joseph, he doesn't grow up in what we call a, a strong family. He doesn't have even a normal family. This isn't a two-parent home. You've got one dad, Jacob, and you've got four wives. You've got Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah. They're 13 kids, 12 sons and a daughter. And then Rachel, Joseph's mother, dies giving birth to Benjamin, his younger brother. And so you have this dysfunctional home. And then leading up to cha this chapter in chapter 37 and chapters 33 and 34, it tells it that Jacob moved the whole family and, and he moves to an area outside of a place called Shechem. And by the way, Shechem is the place where Abraham first went and God first announced his covenant. And Abraham had built an altar there. But in the story, in those, those verses in chapters 34 and 33 and 34, is the story where there's a young man there also by the name of Shechem, and his dad is Hamar, he's the king over the area, and Shechem sees the sister, Dinah, and he goes, wow. Let me read you the verse, 34 verse two in Genesis says, when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hiphite, the prince of the land saw her, he took her and he laid with her by force. Rape right here happens to the family. Now, the issue in this chapter is basically Jacob does nothing. He doesn't seek justice and, and later on, Shechem, this young man and his father Hamar come and see if they can arrange a marriage with the family, and, and Jacob seems amenable to that, but the brothers trick 
Hamar. Hamor. And what they do is they, they tell him, hey, for anybody to be part of the, the Hebrew culture, your men must be circumcised. And Hamor and Shechem agree. And so the, all the men of the city get circumcised. And most of you know this story. Then the 10 brothers, they attack the city and they kill every man. But hey, it was wrong for what Shechem did. That was a sin. And he should have been punished. He should have been put to death. But for every man to die, that wasn't right either. What I, the reason I'm sharing this because I want you to see the heart of Joseph's brothers. You push them too far, there's murder in their heart. And we're going to see that come up a little later on. And there was a deep discord in this family. There was hatred, literal hatred and jealousy brewing in the midst of this family. In Genesis chapter 35, there's also another problem. Reuben, now he's, he's, he should be the leader. He's the oldest brother. He actually cheated or had an affair with one of his dad's wives. Genesis chapter 35 verse 22 says, it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. But again, we don't see Jacob do anything. He's kind of passive he didn't make Reuben own up to his sin. But, and the reason I'm sharing all this with you kind of up front is, again, you've got this family, guys, that is so messed up. I mean, really bad. I mean, it is a sitcom totally off the wheels, bad. And maybe some of you have that kind of family. When you look back and you see the things and how messed up you've come out of, it only shows how great our God is and the kind of grace that he will choose people like us with totally weird backgrounds and all kinds of messed up stuff and he still can use us for his glory. It's clear Jacob did not manage his household well. Now Joseph was set apart for his father's affection and verse three says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all the other sons because he was the son of his old age. And as we looked at last week, Jacob should have known that doesn't work. That's exactly what happened to him with his dad. When, when his dad loved Esau more than him, he knew the pain that that would cause, and yet he replicates that same thing in his family. And what happens is it brings in this divide. And it also says in verse three that Jacob loved him because he was the son of his old age. Now, I can kind of give Jacob that. You know, he, he's the son of his favorite wife. And he's getting older in years, and maybe many of you or some of you are grandparents. And I, I, there's something about when you get older, and you just want to pour out your life on these little ones, you know? And you love them, and you, man, they just, they're special. And I think that's kind of what we're looking at here. But the problem is, is the way he showed it, the way he showed his affection. He gave him this special gift, a, a various colored coat. And, and that various colored coat, it, it made Joseph really kind of develop pride. I'm the man. I'm the special one of the family. God gave me the only special coat. But also it brought hatred and discord with the brothers. Who the heck does he think he is? By the way, favoritism does not help a home. Favoritism hurts a home. Favoritism hurts the one who you give your affection to, and it hurts all those siblings who feel like they're a second-class citizen. And by the way, favoritism also hurts a church family. 
The Bible's very clear that we as a church, that everyone in God's eyes is one, is equal in his eyes. As a matter of fact, in the book of James, it speaks about showing favoritism in church. James 2, verse 1 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And basically, he goes on to say that in the church, there were people that were showing favoritism to those who were wealthy. They were giving them special seats and all that kind of stuff. But you can just kind of take that on. I mean, maybe some of you, you have your special friends in church. And they are shown kind of your, your special favor, but everybody else are kind of second class. Or, or maybe there are certain people in church, you know, man, they're, they're pretty wealthy. They're doing pretty good. And so you kind of snuggle up against them and maybe they can help me out. Wink, wink. Or maybe there's a ministry you want. And so you cozy up to the leaders of the ministry because there's something you want. But the Bible says that we are to, to not do that within the church body, but we're to receive everyone, even, it says, to love our enemy. So it doesn't work in church, and it definitely doesn't work in the home because the Bible says we're all one. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So what is true in the church is also true in a family, and we see what happened in this family is there's this great divide to the point where it's called hatred. Look at verse four, it says, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So I think this is more than just the giving of the coat. I mean, that was Jacob's fault. There was so much messed up stuff on that family, and, and what Jacob did is he fed that anger that turned into hatred and jealousy. Now, Karen and I were, were, were real aware of this, having three kids, and maybe some of you parents know what I mean. As we were careful, we really wanted our kids to know that each one was unique, and we really wanted them to know that they are a gift from God. That was our desire, that no one felt like they were special, and just because my son Matt was the first, or my daughter Emily was the only girl, or whatever, we wanted each one to know that we loved them equally. And so one thing we decided to do when our kids were turning 18, now, in the United States, we really don't have a way, if you call it a rite of passage into adulthood, we, you know, we missed that one. We were, when we were in Jerusalem, they were having bar mitzvahs. That's a really cool thing, by the way. You just see this, this 13-year-old boy, they're just celebrating, and he's going from, if you will, childhood to manhood. Now, at 13, uh, but still, you, you understand the point that they were making something special. This is a new beginning for you. And so what we decided to do as a family, starting with our oldest son, when they turned 18, we threw them a special birthday party, but it wasn't just a birthday party. We asked, their, we asked their youth pastor to be there. We asked other adults that had poured into their life to be there. We wanted each of them to share for about five minutes the things that they saw God was doing in their life and the things that they saw in terms of gifting and things about them as a young man or a young woman with our daughter. And then Karen and I would personally share the things that we saw, how special they were to us. And then we had all their friends that were there. We'd all gathered around and we all laid hands on them and we prayed blessing on them that they would walk with Jesus Christ. If you will, a rite of passage that each one of our kids when they turned 18, we wanted them to know, we love you, we love you, we love you. Jacob didn't do that. What he did, he went, you're the special one. And that set up Joseph for a fall. So that's the first thing we see is that Joseph was set apart for his father's affection. The second thing we see is Joseph was set apart for his 
brother's jealous hatred. Jealous hatred. Now, it's one thing to just dislike somebody, but this was far beyond dislike. There was murder in their hearts. In verses 4, 5, and then verse 11 says, His brothers saw their father, loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him, could not speak to him on friendly terms. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. I want you to see, see the progression there. There's a progression of intensity. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 11, they were jealous. And there's three factors, I think, that drove this. The first factor in verse 3 is he brought back a bad report about his brothers. So, so understand that he was kind of given a job by his dad. You're going to be the watchdog. You're going to watch over your brothers. And instead of actually just doing the job with them, he kind of oversaw them. Big mistake. But, you know, he was kind of prideful. Hey, I'm the man. I got the coat. And so he brings back a bad report. I think the report was real. I think they did something probably really stupid. It doesn't say what it is. But the fact that he did that, boy, that set him up. The second thing is that various colored coat. Now, that distinguished him from his brothers. I mean, it was bright, however it was made. It was probably very valuable. And so just the fact that his dad gave him that, that was bad. But understand, what his dad is doing is he's giving him a position. And it is the position of a leader over them. Oh, man. That so set him up. One, on his side for pride, but on the other side for their anger, for their hatred. And there's a third thing. Not real wise. He, he had these dreams. And then he tells them what the dreams are. And these dreams are basically saying, I'm the man. Now they start in verse 5, go to verse 7. It says, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. In verse 6, and he said to them, please listen to the dream which I had. And for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, if you've ever seen a sheaf, it's basically, you know, wheat stalks, kind of like this, and they're tied in the middle, and so you can actually stand them up. And so his is standing, and theirs are, if you will, are bowing down to them, showing that, of course, he's in charge. Now, if that's not bad enough, a little icing on the cake, he goes, oh yeah, by the way, I had another dream, right? Now, listen to verse eight when he told the first dream, though. He says, you're actually going to reign over us. Are you really going to rule over us? And it says they, they hated him more. And then he goes, yeah, and I got this second dream, by the way, also. And the second dream is verses 9 and 10, and he says the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And with this one, he relates back to his father and mother and all his siblings. Hey, the whole family is going to bow down to me. They are so mad. They are livid. Now, we know from later chapters that this is actually going to come to pass. This is actually a vision from God. I don't know if it was wise for him to say it, though. I mean, at this point, they want nothing to do with him. At this point, their heart is totally turned against him, and they're livid. And verse 11 says, his brothers were jealous of him. And by the way, that idea of jealousy, that jealousy of the heart, that is actually the root. That's the root of what drives their anger. That's the root of what drives them to want to kill him. And jealousy is a monstrous problem. If that's not bad enough, 
Joseph, the way he lived out his life in front of his brothers constantly stirred up the jealousy. And, and I think if, if the brothers would have understood maybe this concept that I'm hoping we as a church will get that God is sovereign, that God is over all things. And, and, and sometimes God actually blesses some people in certain ways, maybe different or you might say more than some of us. And we understand that these different levels of blessing, these different events or things that happen in people's lives, that since God is sovereign, God is allowing that. And if maybe you don't get what they got or whatever, that that's up to God, not you. But so many of us can fall into this trap of jealousy. And, and before we judge these brothers too harshly, I mean, just think about yourself. I mean, I saw it a lot when I was in business. You know, I don't know why, but the Lord blessed my business. He just did. And I was a sales guy, and, and every year that I worked in sales was a better year than the year before. He, did, he blessed it. But I gotta tell you, I saw a lot of the other salesmen in the office, they were not thrilled with me. Made them upset that for whatever reason I landed new accounts every year and that kind of thing. So not only do I see it in business, but you also see it on sports teams, even young ones. You got the first string, you got the second string, and you got the bench. Even at young age, you can see this jealousy spark. You see it with actors, right? You're trying out for the part and you get, the person gets the lead part and somebody else gets the second role or a standby. And you even see it in ministry. I've been to a, a few pastor's conferences and there's something that often is heard is how many people do you have in your church? And kind of the stir of jealousy, like, oh. And what you see here is this, this jealous heart. But you know who is a good example of somebody who wasn't jealous? John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, right, he, he understood this idea of sovereignty, of a God who's, who has providential care of his people. And, and, and as Jesus' ministry is ramping up, John the Baptist's ministry is starting to ramp down. And, and, and John had some disciples, and his disciples come to him, and they're pretty upset and listen to what they say to him in, in John chapter 3, verse 26. They came to John. They said, hey, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. They're like, do something. We're losing our people. I want you to hear John's response. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And then he goes further and he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. See the heart in that? He gets it. It is God who gives, and it is God who taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and shame on us as his people when we get a jealous heart. When we strive with God, how come God, they get that, and I don't get that, really? God is sovereign. He knows. I love what Alistair Begg said about John the Baptist. He said he knew that God made him a voice, but not the word. He knew that God made him the forerunner, but not the Messiah. He knew that God had made him a herald, but God had not made him the king. He understood the sovereignty and the providential care of our God. And this principle that God is sovereign and providentially is working in our lives 
Guys, this is critical, critical for us to understand as Christians. Someone once said this, he said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. And if we're honest, there's always gonna be someone ahead of us better than us, if you wanna call it more gifted than us, who have more money than us, whatever. And if Joseph's brothers could have got this, that it was actually God working providentially by his sovereign hand. I think much of this jealousy could have been averted. And when you think about God's providence and, and his sovereignty, I mean, just think about certain people, how you just see how God moved on them. You know, I think about D.L. Moody. I think about Greg Glory. I think about Billy Graham. I mean, Billy Graham was, was, was just some kind of a hick guy from the Midwest. And God takes that man. He didn't even speak like us. And yet God used him in such a powerful way that it could only be, that's God. And God's gonna do that with Joseph. We're gonna see his brothers, they, they don't like him and they're upset. But God's gonna use that jealousy and turn it and actually use it for good. You know, I read a story this past week about a pastor, his name is F.B. Meyer. Now he lived in London, England at the same time that Charles Spurgeon lived there and also a pastor by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. Now, both those pastors were powerhouses, and his church literally was stuck right in the middle. And he confessed. He said, you know, I'm jealous. They got a lot more people than me. Their ministries are a lot bigger than I am. God seems to be using them more. And so he started to say, Lord, I don't want to be jealous. What do I do? And so he started to pray. I want you to hear his words. That's what he said, he said, I find in my own ministry that supposing I pray for my own little flock, God bless me, God fill my pews, God send me revival, I miss the blessing. But as I pray for my big brother, Mr. Spurgeon, on the right-hand side of my church, God bless him, or my other big brother, G. Campbell Morgan, on the other side of my church, God bless him, I am sure to get the blessing without praying for it, for the overflow of their cups will fill my little bucket. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, God, would you bless Spurgeon to the point that that church is so full they don't have enough seats? And oh God, would you bless G. Campbell Morgan to the point that they don't have enough seats and that all those extra people come to my church? That's what he's saying. Don't let me have a jealous heart, God. But what we see there with those brothers is that jealous heart actually turned into hatred and actually is gonna turn into murder. Joseph was set apart for his father's affections. Joseph was set apart for his brother's jealous hatred. And the final one, which is really bringing this together, is Joseph was set apart for God's providential care. God's providential care. As I said earlier, God's providence means that God has not abandoned the world he created, but he worked within his creation, managing all things according to his will. Look at verses 12 through 14, it says, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. And then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And so Joseph's brothers had gone out to pasture in a place called Shechem, and then Joseph is going to go out there. But I want, I want to just kind of set it up with three things I want you to notice. First, Jacob is absolutely clueless how much his, the brothers of Joseph hate him. 
and he literally is sending him into danger. So this is a dad that doesn't see things. He doesn't know. Second thing you see here is that the brothers are in Shechem, and if you remember, Moses is the one that wrote this. Shechem is the place where these brothers had committed murder. They killed all the men in Shechem, and I think Moses is kind of intimating, hey, this is kind of a murderous scene right now. And then finally, we need to remember, God ordained this. God's working behind this, and he's sending Joseph out providentially. I want you to hear this. It is better for Joseph to be isolated and away from his home and in the center of God's will than for Joseph to stay at home and be out of God's providential care. I want to say that again. It is better for Joseph to be isolated and away from his home and in the center of God's will than to stay home and out of God's providential care. Now, I want you to hear me because this is so important. Many people say, I would never go on that mission field because it's too dangerous. Oh, I can't go out on the street and talk to people because I'm too afraid. As if somehow God's not in the mix and you're outside of his providential care. If God calls you, he will care for you. So that we can boldly move forward in faith and go to the places that God calls us to because it's a much safer place to be in the center of God's will than to be out of his will, even if that means that place is your home that you think is safe. You get it? We need to get this one as Christians. But what I want you to see too is Joseph, he's got character. His father says go, and he obeys. I think already you see in this young man that he has developed a, he's beginning to develop that Christ-like, that God-like character where he understands that it honors God when you obey your parents. Now it's interesting, Jacob doesn't realize that this is the last time he's gonna see his son. When Joseph walks out that door, he won't see him for another 20 years. This is it, this was the final goodbye. In verses 15 through 17, Joseph goes and he goes down to Shechem, but he, the, the guys aren't there. And there's a man there that says, no, they went, they went to Dotham. So from where he was in Hebron to Shechem's 50 miles, then he goes to Dotham, that's another 15 miles, that's a 65 mile trip that Joseph takes. And verse 18 says that when the brothers saw him at a distance, by the way, how did they do that? How'd they know? Well, he probably had the coat on. <laughs> oh man. Multicolored coat, here he comes. Now it's interesting, 19, they said to each other, here comes the dreamer. They're just waiting. Here he comes. That hatred, that jealousy, that envy is all stirred up in them. And finally, they're gonna have their chance to get even. And by the way, their chance to get even is also even against their dad. We're gonna get even against him for the way he's been treating us and we're gonna get even against that kid, that stinking 17-year-old who's all full of pride who thinks he's all that. This is their moment. It's interesting though, little do they know that this is within God's providential care. That God is involved in this whole thing. It doesn't excuse their sin. It doesn't excuse the fact that they're gonna sin against God and sin against their brother, but what they don't understand is that God actually is involved in all that. 
And look at the murder in their hearts in verse 20. And it came, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him and then let us see what will become of his dreams. Commentator Thomas Mann imagined it like this. He said, and with one accord, their hearts beat with a wild rapid rhythm like drums so that a hollow concerted drumming noise arose in the breathless stillness. When young Joseph arrived, the murder was set. The crowning wickedness was the plan to cast his murdered body into a pit, unburied, the supreme dishonor. Now here's a really interesting thought. The very one that they're planning to kill is the very one who will rescue them years later. The very sin that they're going to commit they're actually committing suicide themselves. Do you guys see it? The things that we do outside of God's will, sometimes, if you will, we try to thwart his plans. We don't see behind the bend. And God is moving this forward. And guys, this is a picture of the gospel right here. You have those who hate this young man who want to put him to death, but he's the one that's going to save them. Now, the brothers did not realize an important truth. God's on the throne. He's providential. He even moves in the heart of Reuben, the oldest. Reuben's like, I don't want to see this happen. And in verse 21, it says, but Reuben heard this and he rescued him out of his hands. Let us not take his life. And so when Joseph arrives at that camp, the brothers jump on him, they strip off his coat, they dump him in a pit, no water, no food, and then they sit down to lunch. Yeah, let's have a meal. I'm hungry. It's, it's hard abusing someone. I'm hungry. But then all of a sudden they look up and there are these slave traders coming. Now, now is that by chance? Just happened to show up just as they throw him in the pit? Verse 28, then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled up and they lifted Joseph out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and he brought Joseph to Egypt. As there is no chance in God's sovereign plan. And hear me on this. The idea of God's so sovereign providential care, it includes suffering. Sometimes it even includes betrayal and hurt. Sometimes it includes physical pain. Sometimes it includes the job not going the way that we planned. See, if you think that God's blessing only means health and wealth and prosperity, then you're reading another Bible than I'm reading. And the health and wealth gospel, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Every man and woman in the Bible that was used by God suffered, most of them in a major way. All the apostles, they were martyred for their faith. Even John the apostle, he was martyred. He just didn't die, but later on. And so suffering is a part of God's plan. Understand, it's part of his providential care. His care for you includes suffering. Well, Pastor Rob, what does that mean? It means that God cares for you so much, he knows that he needs to mold and change your heart. He knows that he needs to orchestrate events, allow things to happen so that you will wake up. There is a God on the throne and he is over all things. 
And he doesn't always want us so comfortable. You know what? He wants you usable. He wants you to be able to hear his voice. And most of the times, from my perspective as a pastor, most of the people that I see that come close to God are the people that are struggling. That God has allowed an event or situation in their life where they, I am awake. Oh, God, help me. But when things seem to go smooth, health, wealth, prosperity, there's a distance from God. In other words, the love of God and his providential care often includes great suffering. And that's okay as his people when we settle in that and we're fine with that. And we say, yes, Lord, your will be done in my life. Now, Peter said this in 1 Peter 5.10. Listen, he said, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter says the God of all grace. Do you know that, that suffering and pain is actually part of God's grace? And he uses it to what? To perfect us. That doesn't mean you'll become perfect, but it means to mold us, to shape us, to grow us up, to confirm us. That means to establish our faith, that, that we know that we know that we're his, to strengthen us, that we become stronger and we persevere because of pain and also to establish us. That means our foundation is Christ. And when those storms come and they crash against our house, it will not fall because it's built on the rock and not upon the sand. And Joseph's pain that he's experiencing, he's gonna be taken as a slave, is part of God's providential care, his love for him. Now in verses 29 through 35, Reuben comes back, sees Joseph is gone, freaks out. They come up with this plan and they tear the coat, they smear it with blood, they take it to Jacob and they said he was killed. Jacob buys the lie. And the end of the story in verse 36 is, meanwhile, the Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. I want to read for you verse, chapter 39, verse 2, and it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Do you see it? You see that throughout the rest of the chapters. What do you mean he was with me? Yeah, he was suffering. He's in change. He was stripped of all identity as a son, He's sold into slavery, but yet what? The Lord is with him. And God often has to strip us before we'll listen. I don't know if you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She's, she's a quadriplegic. Uh, she can't move her, uh, really use her hands or her feet or arms or her legs. And, and I read a story about she was um, camping with her husband up in the high Sierras one summer. And they went up there and it was a summer evening. And this is what she said. She said, the Fire is a capricious friend. One moment it can be my best companion imaginable and an instant later it can turn on you with a vengeance. She goes, I think back to a camping trip with my husband a number of years ago and for weeks on end I look forward to spending a cool evening huddled alongside a warm fire in the high Sierras. She said, that's living. And that's why I didn't mind when Ken left me by the fire pit one night and he went to fill his canteen with water. And so you understand she's in a wheelchair. It's not a power wheelchair, a regular one. She's sitting by this fire. And, she's, and she was saying that there's, there's this cool breeze kind of wafting through the forest. You could smell the pine. And her husband's off down at the creek. And she said, all of a sudden, a wind came up. I want to read it to you. Suddenly a wind came up and the whole picture changed. An instant, the flames vaulted higher and choking cloud of smoke enveloped me. 
I was unable to will myself away from the fire or even cry out. All I could do is sit there sputtering and coughing and terrified I watched as the growing flames began to lick around my feet. And for a few awful seconds I felt afraid. I knew I was going to be seriously burned and there was nothing that I could do about it. And she said, and at that moment, her husband Ken came back. He dropped the canteen, he ran, and he pulled her away from the fire. Listen to what she said. She said, I learned how quickly a cozy mountain blaze can turn from friend to foe. Fire, it's another one of those things that has great potential for good and an equal potential to hurt for harm. A campfire can barbecue tasty hamburgers one moment or to break out its boundaries and attack a forest the next. And then she said, and so it is with suffering. With profound potential for good, it can also be a destroyer. Suffering can pull marriages of families together, uniting them through hardship, or it can rip a family apart with selfishness and bitterness. Suffering can file off the rough edges of your character, or it can harden your heart like iron. And she says, and this is up to you. It's your attitude in the midst of suffering. And the truth about this section is, what is your attitude? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you know that he cares? Because the attitude in the midst is gonna matter. And this is what we'll see with Joseph. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the truth of these scriptures. We know, Lord, that uh, in this life we will have trouble. But take heart, you've overcome the world. Father, I pray for each person here this morning. They, we all have different aspects of our life, Lord, where I know that some are in the midst of it, Lord, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle. And Lord, uh, the mystery is how even evil things that have been done to us for those that love you and are called according to your purpose, Lord, you can use it for good. I pray even now by your spirit that you can work I pray as hearts are kind of settled right now, Father, that by your spirit you may minister. May you speak. May you help. May you show each person here the love and care that you have for them, Lord. As our sovereign Father, you are good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.